Good morning, church. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. And as we know, the book of Revelation is a very hotly debated book that many people like to argue over or not discuss whatsoever. There can be much debate about who certain figures are in the book of Revelation, what the visions mean, who is the harlot, who is the false prophet, who is the beast. Who are these figures coming up out of the sea? What are the time frames of all of these events? The list goes on and on. There those should be fundamental agreement that we have in the book of Revelation on the fundamental truths that it proclaims. Most of all, who the book is about and who is worshipped. Most people think Revelation means the revelation of the end times. But the book of Revelation itself tells us it is actually the revelation of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ. Most people try to make Revelation about the revealing of the Antichrist. But spoiler, the word Antichrist is not even found in the book of Revelation. So... People are trying to use Revelation to identify the Antichrist, but it's not about the Antichrist. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. This book is about Him. He is the one worshipped for who He is and what He has done. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. We see in Revelation 5, He is high and lifted up as a lion from the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, and He is worshipped. He is worshipped for who He is and what He has accomplished. So the book of Revelation, first and foremost, is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And this revelation was given to the Apostle John in the first century. John, the Apostle whom Jesus loved. Jesus sent His angel to John to bear record of the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus, and of all the things He will be shown. This letter is given to John for the seven churches that are in Asia, that is in modern-day Turkey, and at the time was under the rule of the Roman Empire. These churches face persecution as Christians, right? Christians who had turned the world upside down, who had disrupted social order, who has turned household against household, who has disrupted the old order. If you claimed allegiance to anyone but Christ, you were a traitor. And claiming Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord is a political statement. And that was understood in the first century. Persecution and tribulations were great for the church. And John shared in that tribulation. He was not some ivory tower theologian sitting high and lofty, writing to an underground church uh, about things he had never experienced. No, his boots were on the ground. He faced the same persecutions and he was banished to the Isle of Patmos for his testimony of Christ at the time of this book. He seemed to be the apostle that nobody could kill. Right? And they tried to. He was the one apostle we believe that lived to a ripe old age. It has been said that he has, was even boiled alive in oil and survived. Look with me at Revelation 1 verse 9. 
says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is a brother, a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and in the patient endurance of Jesus Christ. He is a fellow partaker of Christ and like the churches, he is suffering tribulation. John is writing to the churches that are currently facing various degrees of of persecution, trials, and temptations. And these seven churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This letter was written to the churches and each pastor would read the letter aloud to their congregations and then pass the letter on to the next church. They didn't have a printing press. There was one letter of the book of Revelation. So they received it. They spoke it. They passed it to the next church. Jesus addresses each Uh, church individually and he has specific words for their circumstances each church would see the addresses of christ to the other churches right one letter for six of the seven churches jesus has commendations for their faithfulness for four of the seven he has rebukes where they are failing and lacking for all of the churches he has a specific word for them to persevere in their particular circumstances and four of the seven churches are told the consequences if they disobey every church is given a a promise of their reward if they overcome and conquer and that's the point of this letter to make known the revelation of Jesus Christ to the seven churches and for the churches to conquer and overcome through his revealing So these churches face specific persecutions and temptations. Not much different from from the playbook that we see used against the church today. The early church was pressured to proclaim no king, no allegiance, but Caesar and to renounce Christ. We see that same spirit in our age today in many different ways. Right now, in our world, the reprobates have deemed June as sodomy pride month. And Christians are pressured into bowing the knee to the sodomite mob and deny what Christ has said about sexual ethics, sexuality, and gender roles. We have just gone through the last couple of years where the government has placed itself above Christ and has demanded we mask up, vax up, and not meet to worship our Lord, our Almighty God. Pastors have been imprisoned on our continent for not bowing to the evil demands of the government. Not much is new under the sun. The depravity of man remains the same. And there are reoccurring themes that we see throughout history. We have influential world leaders today that want to exclude and choke people out of economic systems if the people do not apply to uh, comply with their agendas. We saw that same tactic used against the first century church. We also see attacks of heresy and sexual immorality infiltrating these early churches. They are commanded by the Lord Jesus to rebuke false teaching, not to tolerate heresy, put to death sexual immorality, and put those outside of the church who practice such things. All things we see that have infiltrated mainstream evangelicalism today. This letter is written to particular churches in a particular time. But we can learn from their situation on how to faithfully endure and conquer until the end.
We have the same God and we have the same command to live as faithful witnesses to our Lord Jesus Christ. The general outline of the book of Revelation, I believe, revolves around uh, the the different visions that... uh, John receives and where they take him to. So part 1 of Revelation is the introduction. Uh, Revelation 1, 1 through 8. Part 2 is John in the spirit on Patmos, which is chapter 1 verse 9 through the end of verse or chapter 3. Part 3 is John in the spirit in heaven, which is chapter 4 through chapter 16. Part 4 is John in the spirit in the wilderness, which is chapter 17 through chapter 21 verse 8. Part 5 is John in the spirit Spirit on the mountain, which is chapter 21, 9 through 22, 5. And part 6, the conclusion, is 22, 6 through 21. This morning, we will be looking at the introduction to Revelation, the prologue to the book, the first eight verses. And I believe John is laying out the foundation for the entire book of Revelation in the person and the work of Christ. And this is the foundation of the church's faith and the grounds of their uh, of them faithfully persevering to the end. When we understand what is laid out in these first eight verses, no matter the time or place that we find ourselves in history, we should see no other alternative than to hold fast and serve our God with all faithfulness because of who He is and the status that He holds. I have titled this this sermon this morning, The Foundation of Perseverance and Conquest. And the three points are, first, the call to attention, second, the God of affection and authority, and third, ascension and aftermath. So, let's look at the first point, call to attention, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So first we see this is a revelation of Jesus Christ given to Christ by God to show His servants. And what is He going to show His servants? Things that must soon take place. This is a book written to churches telling them Events that are going to happen soon in their time. We also see in verse 3 the statement, For the time is near. Things that soon must take place. The Greek word for soon is taxos. And it means speedily, quickly, swiftly. Many of the events described in the book of Revelation are soon to take place. And this letter is preparing them for the days they are going to endure. This is a call to attention. Wake up. Do not be lax or comfortable. These things are upon you. Strengthen what remains. Get your business in order. Prepare yourselves for what is at hand. And Christ made this letter known by sending His angel to John. And John bore witness to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus and made known all that He received. This is a faithful testimony given by a faithful God to a faithful servant. 
And there are blessings for those who rightly handle this book. Verse 3 tells us, Blessed are those who read the book out loud, who hear it, and who obey what is written in it. Remember, this, this letter is going to be read out loud by the pastors in these churches, and they are told to hear it. They are told to obey it, and they will be blessed. Sounds simple enough, right? But we know how that goes sometimes. We ourselves hear the Word of God preached each week. How well do we listen to it? How well do we meditate on it? How well do we cherish it and obey what it says? It is a simple command with great blessing, but will it be adhered to? If they do read it out loud, if they do hear it, if they do obey it, they will be blessed and they will conquer. And this is not a prophecy that is to be sealed up like we see uh, in a lot of the Old Testament prophecies. It, the Lord will tell the prophet to bind up the, the prophecy, to seal it up because it's not for that generation. Those prophecies were for hundreds of years into the future. But that's not what the angel tells John in Revelation 22.10. The angel says, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. This prophecy is not to be bound up or sealed up or hidden for any amount of time, but it is to be opened up, proclaimed, understood, because these prophecies are on their doorstep. We see Christ calling His church to attentiveness because of impending times. And we see... In ourselves, we too have a day and we too have a battle. There's never a time for a Christian to be lax, to be slothful, to be on autopilot, to Netflix and chill their lives away. We are always on mission, in a battle. Our command is to disciple the nations and to subdue the earth to the rule and reign of Christ. You might not be living in the first century. You, you might not have Romans seeking your life. But God has given His people throughout history a job and a task. We are called to good works and to proclaim the Lordship of Christ in all that we do, in our speech, in our actions. We cannot remain static or slothful as our enemies plan, devise, and scheme. We cannot remain static. We must be about the work of the kingdom and live out the prayer that Christ prayed. Remember, He says, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are doing the, earth, the, the will of the Father on earth. God sharpens and sanctifies His people by giving them a battle and an enemy. We should be thankful when we are given dragons to slay. Persecution, tribulation, and temptations are sanctifying means God uses to conform His people to the image of His Son. And Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 10-12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and under all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Count it a blessing when we have the opportunity to persevere and overcome persecution. God is on the throne. And He is using these times to glorify Himself and to bless His people. 
This letter is imminent. They are being called to attention. And we see in the next section, they are reminded, encouraged, and greeted by an all-powerful God who loves them. So we've seen the call to attention. And now we see the God of affection and authority. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God, and... Father, to Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John greets the seven churches with grace and peace from the triune God. Do you notice that? Him who was and who, who is and was and who is to come is the Father. From the seven spirits who are before the throne, the number seven, the number of completeness, of perfection, is describing the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, of course, the Son. The triune God of the universe is greeting these churches with grace and peace. Through the person and work of Christ, the triune God extends grace, peace, mercy, and intimacy to His people. And notice the three descriptions of Jesus here. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Starting with Jesus as the faithful witness, the word witness here is the Greek word martis, which is where we get our word martyr. Jesus is the faithful witness. He proclaimed all that the Father gave Him. He gave correct doctrine, correct interpretation, and correct application, something the Jewish leaders had got all wrong. A martyr is someone who testifies to the truth, and the word martyr has has come to mean as we know it today, someone who dies for their testimony of the truth. Christ is the faithful witness. And He is calling His churches to be faithful witnesses as well. Christ died as the perfect witness, the ultimate martyr, the only martyr in history who died without sin. And He is calling His people to follow Him as faithful witnesses to the truth. And if the time comes, even unto death. So not only did He die as the perfect testimony of truth, But He is the firstborn of the dead. Sin had no case against Him. He defeated the sin that plagued His people. And the Father raised Jesus up by His Spirit as the firstborn of the dead. The dead had been resurrected before in the Old and New Testament, right? But those those were resuscitations. Those people lived, got older, died again. Christ was the firstborn of the dead, never to die again. He rose with the glorified body and returned to his father. Firstborn of the dead implies something, doesn't it? It does not say only born of the dead. It says firstborn of the dead because he is the first of many. 
He is the firstborn and there will be many more after him because he lived and died and resurrected with a glorified body. That means his people will live, die, and one day resurrect with a glorified body. He is the firstborn of many, making his people into his likeness. We see Jesus in John chapter 12 tell us that if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. Jesus is that grain of wheat that falls into the ground. We are His fruit. We are His offspring. We are made in His likeness because He died and raised. He is the firstborn among many brethren. So He is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. The word for ruler in the Greek is archon, which means first in rank or power. So right off the bat, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is proclaimed as the archon, the ruler over all of the kings of the earth. In a first century world that claims Caesar is the king of kings and lord of lords, the churches are being reminded that Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Caesar and all lesser kings of the world, they will have to answer to King Jesus. Be faithful, persevere. Jesus will pay the evil rulers of this world what they are owed. We see in Revelation 6, you can go ahead and turn there. In Revelation 6, the people of God who were slain for their faith, they cry out, for vengeance to God. They asked for vengeance upon those who persecuted them. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God's people long for justice, and the rulers of the earth will be judged for their crimes against God and His people. Stay faithful, be patient, persevere, and know God will execute His perfect justice in due time. In the introduction to the book of Revelation, the people are being greeted and encouraged by the triune God. They have a Savior and Lord who is the perfect witness, who is the firstborn of the dead, who is already the archon, the ruler of the kings on the earth. This is who is speaking to them. This is who is calling them to attention. This is who is reminding them of the foundation of their faith. And we see that continue in verse 5. John makes a statement, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Or as the King James says it, Washed us from our sins in his own blood. These churches have a God who loves them. He has affection for them. It is shown by him shedding his blood on their behalf for their justification. Jesus is motivating his people unto perseverance. He is telling them He is faithful. He is resurrected. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And He loves them and died for them so that they would be His. By nature, 
We are sinners, children of wrath, rebels against God, deserving of His wrath. And we see the love of God extended to us by the person and work of Christ. Love is a great motivator. And so is fear. Not only is God loving, but He is wrathful and has all authority to bring judgment. The people on the wrong side of this thing are going to get it. You do not want to be on the wrong side of this God. But not only that, when this powerful, holy, wrathful God shows mercy and love and grace towards you, why would you want to serve anyone else? How could you bend the knee to Caesar? How could you deny Jesus as Lord? When you have the right view of God, and when you have the right view of yourself, you will persevere and conquer in His name. He has washed us in His blood, and He has made us like Him. Verse 6 says, Christ has made us a kingdom and priest to His God and Father. Not only did He die for His people, but He made His people like Him, acceptable, worthy, righteous, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ to us in His Spirit who dwells in us. We are made a kingdom, a place where God dwells. We are priests. We are able to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to Him, to be pleasing and acceptable. We pray to the Father boldly, Because Christ is our high priest at the Father's right hand, mediating on our behalf. We can make supplication for all men and pray to the Father on their behalf. And the Spirit, it intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. And groans on our behalf when we don't even know what to pray. What a privilege it is to be in Christ, to be made clean, to be made a kingdom and priest to our God, to Him who loves us and who has washed us from our sins by His own blood and made us a kingdom and priest to His God and Father. It says, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We serve a God who has glory and dominion for eternity. Why would you stray from this God? What can man do to you? Endure, overcome, strengthen what remains. Do not neglect such a great salvation. We have seen the call to attention. We have seen the God of affection and authority. Now we come to our final point. Ascension and aftermath. Read with me verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will well on account of Him. Even so, Amen. This is probably the toughest verse in our text to interpret this morning. The tense of this verse makes it seem as if John is describing a future event. Kenneth Gentry, who dates Revelation prior to 70 AD, says this is describing Jesus figuratively coming on the clouds in judgment against the Jews in 70 AD and destroying their temple, abolishing the Old Covenant. Many people who date Revelation to be written post-70 AD says this verse is describing Jesus coming at the end of the world and judging the nations. And I'm not going to draw the line in the sand on the date of Revelation this morning. But I do know that John uses two Old Testament passages in this verse. And these Old Testament passages describe events that have already happened. John is establishing 
here in the introduction. The grounds of perseverance for the seven churches in the person and work of Christ. What he has already accomplished. Whether or not John is citing these passages to point to what happened in the past and use those to look forward to what similarly will happen in the future, I am not sure. But John up to this point has pointed to the work of Christ and the work he's already accomplished and he has not received any visions of the future yet at this point in the book of Revelation. But what are the Old Testament passages that John pulls from here? There are two and they are Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. You can go ahead and turn to Daniel 7. It is to the left of Revelation. John loves to quote the Old Testament throughout the book of Revelation. So Daniel 7, 13 and 14, it describes the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And as we understand it, it's describing the ascension. So Daniel 7, starting in verse 13, says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So Jesus had lived, died, resurrected. He, has, he was coming on the clouds, the Son of Man being Jesus, to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and was being presented before him. And in verse 14, it says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Isaiah 9 says it's an increasing dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Revelation 1.7, John uses the coming in the clouds language that we find in Daniel 7 that describes the ascension. The Son of Man, Jesus, the one who accomplished the plan of the Father on earth, died, resurrected, ascends back to the Father, the Ancient of Days in the clouds, and is presented before Him. And the Father gives the Son of Man all dominion, glory, a kingdom, all peoples, nations, and languages that should serve Him. Kind of sounds like a kingdom, priests to our God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away in a kingdom that will not be destroyed. This sounds a lot like what we've already seen in Revelation 1. He gets dominion, glory, a people, a kingdom, and all of it is eternal. I believe John is referencing the ascension in the coming of the clouds reference because this is the coronation of Christ. This is when He sits on His throne. This is when He receives all of these things. John is giving the basis and the foundation for the persecuted churches to cling to. And he is giving them the reality of what Christ has accomplished and the current status of Christ. In a world that claims Caesar is king, John is giving the picture here that there is no king but Christ. He is first in charge. He is first in order. He is first in authority. And he has dominion. He is the ruler of the king's on earth. So the coming of the clouds reference should at least make us think of the ascension. But what about the part where it says every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and the tribes of the earth will well on account of him? I believe this quotation is describing the immediate aftermath of the ascension. And we see these words 
in Zechariah 12. If you want to turn there, you are welcome to. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So John quotes Zechariah 12.10. And what does God say? He is going to pour out on the house of David and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Wrath? No. It says, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. I definitely believe there is judgment coming. The Son of Man will come and judge. But here we see the spirit of grace poured out. And I believe, again, John is dealing with the status of Christ. That He is ruling and reigning and the implications of that for God's people. There will one day be a judgment against God's enemies. There will be a coming judgment and wrath. And that will be a very dark day for those in rebellion to God. But the coming of the Son will be a joyous day for His people and a bitter day for His enemies. The implications of Christ ruling and reigning is a great comfort and an extension of grace and mercy to the people of God. But what event does Zechariah 12.10 sound like to you? When did God pour out His Spirit on the inhabitants of Jerusalem with the Spirit of grace and pleas for mercy? When were the inhabitants of Jerusalem convicted by the Spirit of grace and asked for forgiveness, for crucifying, for piercing the Lord of glory? When were they cut to the heart? You got it. Pentecost. Pentecost is the immediate fulfillment or the immediate aftermath, rather, of the ascension. It literally happens ten days after the ascension. Turn with me to Acts 2. We will briefly summarize and walk through a couple verses in Acts. The apostles received the Holy Spirit and began speaking the gospel in the native tongue of the people gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And Acts 2, starting in verse 5, says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And this, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Notice, Revelation 1-7 states that all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him whom they have pierced. Many might say this cannot be talking about Pentecost because not all tribes of the earth were there. But in Acts 2.5 it says there dwelling in Jerusalem were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven on the day of Pentecost. It even lists the, the nations these travelers were from. And they all heard the gospel in their native tongue. So oftentimes when, when biblical writers are making statements like all nations of the earth or all tribes of the earth, oftentimes it's referring to the known world at that time, which was the Roman Empire. We also do not know exactly how God even defines nations, peoples, and tribes. We all descend from Noah and we spread out from there, right? But we clearly see Acts 2 stating that all nations under heaven were represented at the day of Pentecost. 
And not only that, we see it is those who pierced him. Right? For that prophecy to be fulfilled, people who actually had a part in piercing Christ would have to be present. The scoffers in the crowd accuse the apostles of being drunk. But Peter gets up and preaches Christ through the Holy Spirit. Peter, in light of the ascension and dominion of Christ, takes dominion himself. And how does Peter take dominion? By preaching the lordship of Christ and making the rule and reign of Christ known to the peoples in Jerusalem. How do the people of Jerusalem see the one that they have pierced? As Zechariah 12.10 states, they see Christ who they pierced through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. When the Jews were demanding Jesus be crucified, Pilate told the Jews that he was innocent of the blood of Jesus. And the Jews said, His blood be upon us and on our children. And remember what the Jews said when Pilate asked if they should crucify his king. They responded, We have no king but Caesar. And that is the same profession that the early church, the first century church, is being pressured to declare that Caesar is king, not Christ. Peter stands up and tells the crowd that this is what the prophet Joel prophesied in Joel 2. That in the last days God will pour out His Spirit on His people. And that is this day, the day of Pentecost. Peter tells the crowd that they have crucified the Son of God, the one the prophets that David foretold, and that He resurrected, and He is exalted at the right hand of God, and He is ruling, and He is reigning, and He is making His enemies His footstool. That's something that we've left off of our gospel presentation these days. We don't talk about the ascension, the rule and reign of Christ, the implications of that, and that He is making His enemies His footstool. But Peter full of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, preached that Jesus. And we see, look with me at Acts 2.36. Peter says that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Many of the Jews who were screaming to crucify Jesus just 50 50 days prior to this were in the crowd on the day of Pentecost. Jesus ascended 40 days after His resurrection, and the day of Pentecost happens 10 days after the ascension. Peter tells the crowd they crucified Christ, and they were convicted and cut to the heart, and they asked, what shall we do? So we see pleas of mercy. I guarantee there was weeping, there was wailing. They realized their guilt in piercing the Son of God. What shall they do? Repent and be baptized. Turn from your sins and come to Christ, the Christ you crucified. Believe on Him for forgiveness and submit to His Lordship. We see the Spirit of grace extended at Pentecost. The first event, literally the first event, we see after Christ ascended back to the Father and Sit down at His right hand, ruling and reigning as a coronated king. We see from His throne, He pours out His Spirit to His people, and He multiplies His followers. He adds 3,000 people to His church in one day, and from there, the, church, the church's number are added to daily. 
So immediately we see the impact of the rule and reign of Christ. Pentecost is the fruit of the rule and reign of Christ. These seven churches in the book of Revelation are the fruit of the rule and reign of Christ. If you are in Christ this morning, you are the fruit of the rule and reign of Christ. The blessing of Christ flows from His throne. And the wrath of the Lamb flows from His throne. If John is looking back to these events that have already happened to point to something in the future that will happen, the people should see their need to submit to the Lordship of Christ and receive the Spirit of grace now, or else the terror of the Lord will be upon them. It will not be the Spirit of grace poured out on His enemies when He comes again. It will be a a day of vengeance for the people of God, and it will be a day of suffering for the enemies of God. The rule and reign of Christ is central to the Christian life. And without proper understanding of who Christ is, what He has accomplished for us, and His current, current status of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there is no hope of perseverance against the tribulations, trials, and temptations of this world. Why do you think children are growing up today and leaving the churches of their parents? Why do you think evangelicalism is in such a weak and compromised state? Because they preach a weak and incomplete Jesus. A Jesus with no authority and no wrath. But Jesus is not weak and incomplete. He is mighty. He is the first in power, the first in charge. He is on the throne. And He is using His people like He used Peter to permeate the earth with the knowledge of Him and His rule and reign. He has ascended. He has sent us His Spirit. And He is the shepherd and the ruler of His people. As we conclude this morning, look with me at verse 8. Says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. The Lord God is the beginning and the end, the eternal one, truly with no beginning or end. Yet he says, He is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Who can stand against this God? Who can outlast this God? The eternal God, the one who is and who was and is to come. What a scary day for the enemies of God when He comes again. For He is Almighty. He is Almighty to destroy and He is Almighty to save. Who can stand against this God? Can Caesar? Can heretics? Can the sexually immoral? Can Joe Biden? Can Anthony Fauci? Can Klaus Schwab? Can the liberals who run your local library? That's a joke with the guys. Nobody can stand against God. So it is insanity to bend the knee to anyone other than Him. And why would you want to bend the knee to anyone other than the exalted Son of Man who rules and reigns in perfect righteousness? When you see Him for who He is and what He has accomplished and the position He holds in the universe, you will see that He, and you also see, you see all that of who He is, and then you see what He's extended to us, that His grace and peace is extended to us, And He has made us righteous and calls you into fellowship with Him. 
How could you bend the knee to anyone else? When you have this God, you cannot lose. The only way to lose is to disobey what He commands. To not read, to not hear, to not obey. But to those who hear, or to those who read and read aloud, hear and obey, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. This is the hope and the promise that the Lord Jesus leaves with the seven churches. That if they are faithful to His words, they will conquer and they will be blessed. So not only do we have the privilege to serve this Almighty God, He promises that if we faithfully serve Him, that we will conquer in His name. And not only will we conquer in His name, we will get rewarded for it. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. And listen to the words of Jesus. Flip over to Revelation chapter 2. The words of Jesus directly to each of the churches concerning the promises to those who conquer, those who overcome. So Revelation 2.7, He says to the church at Ephesus, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To Smyrna in Revelation 2.11, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamum in Revelation 2.18, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To Thyatira in Revelation 2, 26-28. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. To Sardis in Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To Philadelphia in Revelation 3.12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. And lastly, to Laodicea in Revelation 3.21, The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. We see the promises of God to each of the seven churches that if they are faithful, they will overcome and conquer and will rule and reign with Christ and share in all of his blessings. We have no king but Christ. What can Caesar do to us? Let's pray. God, we come before you gathered as your people, grateful, God, for who you are, what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, for who he is, how he has come and testified to the truth that he suffered and died and resurrected the firstborn of the dead. He ascended on high and he is the archon, the rulers of the king of the earth, God. Pray that we live in light of this, that you are ruling, you are reigning, you love us. You have set us apart and sanctified us and justified us, God, and given us your spirit. That we have nothing to fear but you. 
God, and you have extended your grace and mercy to us, Father. We pray that you give us the spirit of boldness, of perseverance, God, of obedience, that we hear your words, God. We read them, we hear them, we listen to them, we meditate on them, and we obey them, Father. This is our prayer, God. We ask that you multiply this word amongst your people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.